Welcome to another uh, another podcast, One Day at a Time, Concentric Educational Solutions podcast, where we talk about the issues and the intersection of community, family, students, education, and politics. Uh, I have a wonderful guest today, Councilman of the 7th District, James Torrance. I want to thank you so much for stopping by the cast. Uh, as always, want to say thank you to our spotless, uh, sponsor, the Atlas Restaurant Group. 30, 28, 29, 30 restaurants across the uh, Baltimore area, all the way to Philadelphia, down all the way to Miami, even all the way over to uh, Texas. So I just want to uh, thank you for your continued sponsorship. So we're going to jump right into it. You're from Baltimore. Talk to me about your journey. So I say Baltimore, but really I'm a son of Baltimore. Okay. Um, grew up in Latrobe Homes, not too far from here, oh. City Hall. Um, for most people who want to know where it is, if you know where Dunbar High School plays, it <laughs> is the housing. <laughs> it's a public housing complex mm-hmm. across the street. Grew- That's where you grew up. Yep. It's interesting because Carl Stokes, who was a former council person, grew yes. up in 927 Abbott Court. I grew up in 929 Abbott Court, 1101 McAleer Court, and then my mom had an apartment at 927 Abbott Court. So we actually grew up in the same house at different times in life. Wow. So my journey is clear. Like, I'm the son of two people who are returning citizens. Both were incarcerated. My mom and my father at mm. the time for um, drug distribution. Um I had to watch them from across a window in prison up until the age of like 10. Because it's right there. Yeah, it's right there. Literally. And my mom was in Jessup. My father was here. So like I clearly knew where my father was. I knew where my mom was. We took visits in vans this year. Even went to a a halfway house in Park Heights when she got out. So that's why a lot of the stuff that I do on the council now is related to my experiences and then the experiences of those I represent. So- I went to Carverville Tech. Um, what made you go, uh, want to go to Carver? Oh, my grandfather. My grandfather grew up on Gwens Falls yep. in a 3400 block. And he, his brother Eric, all went to um, Carverville Tech. They, my, actually, my grandfather was a, was a barber. But when he had my mother, he would mm-hmm. use his braiding skills that he learned in barbering school and braid a hair. Yeah, this is a hell of a journey. So you started in Latrobe Projects. Mm-hmm. I was there until I was 25. How was it to you, uh, 25? Yep. I got a bachelor's and a master's degree while I was in public housing. What, how did it shape you? What, like, what, coming from Latrobe, like, how, how, like, what are some of the things that really, like, galvanized or shaped you? And what, you, what did you learn uh, going through it? I think it's twofold because when you think about Baltimore, everyone in Baltimore is uniquely connected mm. in some way. Um, I could tell you that I have colleagues who have family members who grew up in Latrobe. Um, Latrobe, when it originally was created, was just this middle class place where people would come, they move out, move on. And then after you saw the fall of like big industry in Baltimore, you saw mm-hmm. people stand there and it became a generational thing. So my grandmother, who recognized that, basically told me, baby, you got to get out of here. Mm. <laughs> and for me, that fueled me because it was, let me go to Carver. Let me see if I can get into, at the time, was computer repair. Mm-hmm. Thought I was going to make a lot of money. Um, then my grandma was like, you should go to college. Instead of getting a certification, get your certification, go to college. Went to college, like, I'm not going to do this. Where'd you go to undergrad? Towson University. Okay. So I got an opportunity to go to multiple colleges, but Towson was the right choice because growing up poor, they were paying me to go to school. <laughs> Really, and it's a, it's a really good school. Like it's, it's a really good school. Yeah, there, there's there's definitely some gems here. Um, like one of the ones when I when I uh, after undergrad I went to Lincoln. I come, uh, coming to Baltimore, I started my career at Forest Park. 
Um, then I went to Southwestern High School, so we're, you know, right around the way. You have been past the graveyard. Huh? Yes, 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 yes. Um, but you know, I remember always running. I mean, I was a track coach when I was at Southwestern, so we would run at Carver, and yeah, like I had fond memories of, of Carver. And historically, it's it's a gem. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why. So I had a composite score high enough to get into Poly. Okay, high enough to get in the city, in Dunbar. Everyone was going those places, but for me, I wanted to still stick with the legacy of my grandfather hmm. because Carver was only one of the few schools that black men and women can go to, right? Yeah. So yes. like, I love my friends who went to Polyan City, but they didn't accept us until the 1970s and 50s and 60s. Yeah. Yeah. So that was one of the things my grandmother taught me about the history of black people in Baltimore. So. Ironically, I live in a district that was also served by Harry S. Cummings, who was the first African-American council person. Hmm. And that was in free Baltimore in 1890. He was one of the free black people that lived in Federal Hill and then moved to West Baltimore and George Heights. And for me, representing the district is is full circle because the Civil Rights Act was written in this district. I didn't... So, like, it's literally a full circle of understanding the history of Black Baltimore. When you think about the Methodist, the African African American, African and Methodist Episcopal Church, yes. the connection to Morgan State University mm-hmm. and Druid Heights, and how a number of the people who who were lived and worked there came here, mm-hmm. or the fact that like I would go to Morgan, like even going to Morgan Park, just to see yep. where Frederick Douglass' house was. Yes. We're not even Frederick Douglass, where um, W. Du Bois' house was. Mm-hmm. Or understanding that when I met my wife at the Druid Hill Y, which is one of the oldest black YMCAs in this country. Okay, yeah, right. I, that's why I used to work. Yeah, I used to, when I when I moved into the city, so when I first moved here from undergrad, uh, me and my, my line brother, our, our, our frat brother, moved, we were in, uh, on Randallstown, right off security. But then he went back to Philly. I moved into into Baltimore, uh, right on Druid Park Lake Drive, uh, the Riviera and the Chateau and the Chateau right there. And I used to always run and work out at, at the Drew Hill Y. And then that's where I used first start running past the brownstones. And I was like, wow, like I, I feel like I'm in Harlem because how big those brownstones are on Utah. Mm-hmm. And I became infatuated, you know what I mean, uh, with that area. All right, so now you go you go through you go through Carver, you go to. Towson, what starts gets you thinking like, okay, this is uh, public service is something I want to do. So I got mentored by state Senator Vernon Jones Rotwell. Um, I was working on her campaign. Unbeknownst to a lot of people, I worked in campaigns since I was 14. Oh, wow. Knocking doors. It was my community service, get my hours. And I also got paid sometimes. Right. Okay. And then I finally got started working as a campaign manager for a state senator. And then she saw the talent I have. And then she brought me on as her chief of staff. Okay. Okay. At 22, I'm a chief of staff for a state senator fresh out of college, learning how not only to be a professional, but also being the visible face for someone else. Okay. And being an advisor to someone else on like issues that affect the state. You know, it's interesting is... As I'm having more and more politicians and we're just talking, you know, and, and, and converse about the things we're doing, there's an underlying passion that you have that it comes out in your voice when you're talking about public service. And when you're talking about Baltimore, like, you, you know, for being relatively young compared to me, like you're steeped in the history and well underst- understand the, the importance of it. Man. Like what, what kind of drove you to... Like when you you get into the public service, but what kind of drove you that this is you knew that this was uh, your calling or what you wanted to do? So 
a lot of it was about people always say I'm the exception. Mm -hmm. I'd rather be the rule. And a lot of what I do in my work is to make sure I am the rule. No matter what your zip code is, you can be successful. You can get out of public housing. You can get out of zip code or build your zip code up to be what it, you're seeming to be. And I say that because I was at Carverville Tech when the window of the biology classroom fell uh-huh. out into a football coach's car. Oh. And we fought as an SGA with uh-huh. alumni and others to get the state to put $18 million into this building to now make it the school that it is today. Wow. Right. So for me, and a lot of people always laugh at my tagline, which is um, committed to community, dedicated to progress. Hmm. Because that's what it is. Everywhere I went in terms of public service, it was about creating progress for everybody. And that's one of the conversations I always have with like my work on the council until black Baltimore thrives, Baltimore won't thrive. Hmm. What have you seen in your time? Right? Where is the trajectory now, particularly when an election year? What is like, we know some of the key issues that they keep bringing up, whether it be juvenile justice, um, uh, uh, getting the neighborhoods back uh, going. Like, what, what do you, what have you seen as the the fundamental issues facing uh, facing Baltimoreans, uh, particularly this election season, I think two parts. It's one, the council as well as the work of the city is we've made historic low. We've brought crime down. Yes. The question is stabilizing and keeping it going. Right. Mm-hmm. We've made strategic investments. How do we make sure those investments are not only sustainable beyond the fact that we have a currently have a a budget deficit mm-hmm. and being meaningful. I say that because um, this past budget season, I brought up the story of a young man who was going through the group violence reduction intervention that we have in the Western district. Mm-hmm. Instead of committing an actual um, domestic violence incident, mm-hmm. he called a life coach. That life coach was on the phone with him for two hours. Oh, wow. That prevented a crime. Yeah. From happening that created an opportunity for a learning moment, not only for him as a man, but as a partner to someone else. Mm -hmm. And that to me was important Mm -hmm. because he then was being able to process problem solving with Mm -hmm. someone else's Mm -hmm. help. And that's one of the things that we're learning from a number of things that we've seen with violence in the city. Yes. It is both personal yes. and it is targeted. Yes. So how do we get to a point where we are helping our friends, our neighbors, our family members to recognize cognitively mm-hmm. not to do this act? And see, you know, the, our approach. So the name of the podcast is obviously one door at a time, but it's really my theory of change that we can have some systemic things, which are absolutely necessary, but really that each family, each child, uh, each person is so unique and they need they need something uniquely for them. And how do we solve some of these main challenges? We say one door at a time. So for us, we do thousands and thousands of home visits. But as we get an opportunity to be more vocal about it is like there's a, there's this intersection why students are not coming to school and then juvenile justice. Right. And how do we make sure it, like chronic absenteeism is not, from my opinion, is not just a educational problem. Right? It's a public health problem. If the young people are not in school, then what are the question, then what, what are they doing? Um, how, how do you think 
we can all work a little bit more collaboratively, whether we're in the private or the public sector, whether it's it's in the government or on the side of uh, the educational system. How can we like what what do you do? You have any suggestions that how can we work more collaboratively? I think it has to go back to recognizing humanity first. Because we have probation officers mm-hmm. in the juvenile justice system who don't have time to actually have a meaningful relationship with their clients, right? Yes. And I say clients because they're paying you to monitor them. You're they're paying yes. you to supervise them. So they are you are providing them a service. Mm-hmm. But you're also providing us a public service too. The other piece is how do we work with the school district to identify those at the most at risk and be mm-hmm. intensive case management behind each individual child. And that's one of the things from like even this past like uh, hearing that we had on school safety, mm-hmm. I went after the systems failures in city schools. Yes. Like are your teens being supported in terms of like training? Does your principal know what the homeless coordinator is to get the training that the homeless mm-hmm. coordinator is getting? Does mm-hmm. your principal know and the team know how your um, social emotional team is being supported in their training so that we're all understanding this holistically. Yes. Because Agree. there is both the carrot and the stick, mm-hmm. but we can't continue to be the stick and ignore the fact that there's opportunities to incentivize children to be who they are and create environments where they can be who they are. And you have such a unique perspective because you, you went through Baltimore city public schools, right? Mm-hmm. You lived it. Like I, I think that, and you're still like, you're, you're, you're embedded in it. Right. And you're invested in it. I think there's such, sometimes such a huge disconnect uh, and that people don't, they can't speak as authentically as you because they, they just haven't had that lived experience and then making it out and then getting, then giving back. So, I mean, you know, definitely appreciate you do, uh, you know, that commitment to it. What, what is, what, what would be a couple of things that you would want um, the people that you represent in your district uh, to know about your commitment? So, my commitment is twofold, right? Um, I tell people all the time that I have no aspirations otherwise than help people. <laughs> mm. Because the day that it becomes about me is the day that I no longer serve you. Mm. Um, my grandmother told me two things. Um, public service is about serving. And if you don't serve, you get served. And she told me daily pray. Not only pray about it, but also be mindful that the decisions that you make today will affect somebody 20 years later. So for me, every time I believe in intentional change. Mm -hmm. So that's why I've been pushing for violence interruption in in schools, violence interruption in our neighborhoods. Because when people come to my my office for like neighborhood disputes, Mm -hmm. we're sending them community mediation. You need to learn how to talk to each other, not talk past each other. Absolutely. Or we're recognizing even my district both lies in the black butterfly and the white owl. So we're dealing with it across racial lines too. Explain that a little bit more. So in Baltimore, we have a lot of the population of black people form a butterfly around um, I-83, which is the um, interstate highway that goes Mm -hmm. through Baltimore. And then historically, the number of white population makes an L going down 83 and aligns along with it hmm. downtown to Canton. Huh. So, well, that's how we know where our population is settling. But when you look at the disparity in terms of like economics, in terms of access to healthcare, food, everything, mm-hmm. that black butterfly, it dwindles fast. The life expectancy dwindles fast. A lot of the work that we're doing in my district mm-hmm. is how to bridge those gaps. So one of the things is that we're building a brand new recreation center in Penn North. We're also mm-hmm. building 
Charm City Television. They allow a new community space in Penn North as an anchor. Oh, on okay. Top of the actual new recreation center. But around the recreation center, there's a comprehensive plan to renovate the homes that are vacant so that we create home ownership with the yeah. anchor and building off success, right? And then we're working with the West North Avenue Development Authority to build plans out based off community's needs in terms of up and down West North Avenue. Mm-hmm. When community members are at the table. So okay. a lot of my work is switching from this is my vision to I'm listening and how do we get there together? And it's collaborative. Okay. Now, uh, Councilman Torrance, thank you so much. Uh, amazing uh, opportunity just to have a conversation about the, your history of Baltimore, your commitment to Baltimore, and then just just hearing uh, how dedicated you are to the people of Baltimore. I want to thank you. Amazing member of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated, the greatest fraternity. Uh, happy belated J5, y'all, uh, if you didn't celebrate it. But I just want to thank you uh, so much for uh, taking some time out and just, just talking, uh, you know, talking to us about everything. Um, I want to thank everybody for joining in another episode of political campaign um, season for us. One door at a time. We sh- uh, shout out again to our sponsors, the Atlas group. Uh, you can catch us all, uh, all of our content at concentric.world and see you next time. Uh, uh, until that next time, have a good day. Be safe. <laughs>